We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Desmond. Hey, yo. I got a bit of tape I want to play for you to start off the episode. It's from a dude. His name is David Ginsburg. David's a small business owner and he's a dad. He had a question. And the question came up around this whole Mike Duffy scandal where, you know, we, we found out that a few years ago, someone working for Stephen Harper cut a big check to Senator Mike Duffy. Well, the story came out and the press asked Harper about the $90,000 check. And Harper said, that's got nothing to do with me. That's between Mike Duffy and my chief of staff, Nigel Wright. You should probably go ask Nigel Wright. He's the leader of the prime minister's office. So basically, Harper's saying, don't ask the prime minister, ask the prime minister's office. So the part that I don't understand is, how, how is it that the prime minister and the prime minister's office are two separate entities and the prime minister doesn't know what's going on in his own office. If I didn't know what was going on in my office, I don't think I'd have a job. David, I like you. You're asking good questions. But I think that does raise a bigger question. What the hell is this thing that we call the PMO or the prime minister's office? I feel like I know what it is. The prime minister has an office. There are people in it. I get that. But how many people? What do they all do? Are they just like his personal assistants? The way the media talks about the power of the PMO, it doesn't sound like they're just out picking up Harper's dry cleaning. But then just how powerful are they? And how can a prime minister claim that the PMO is some kind of separate thing from him? Let's take a look at the PMO and try to figure some of this out. Okay, so why don't we just call this episode PMO, what it is. (laughs) Let's start the show. I'm Andre Demise. And I'm Desmond Cole. And this is Canada Land Commons. This episode is brought to you by House of Anansi Press, publishers of Spin, How Politics Has Turned Marketing on Its Head, by Clive Veroni. Okay, so I've read the book, finally finished it, and this interesting term, wedge politics, comes up. So I asked the author, Clive Veroni, to tell us a bit about that. To play off one end of the political spectrum against the other, they call it wedge politics. And marketers are now doing the same thing. They're appealing to a group of people on issues of social importance, which they never did before. You know, uh, marketers used to talk about products and politicians used to talk about social issues. And now increasingly marketers are talking about social issues as well. So people take a stand on social media because they feel passionately at one end or the other. And they're wanting increasingly to know not only where their politicians stand on these issues, but where, you know, where the brands that they deal with stand on these issues as well. To buy Spin, or to read more about it, go to houseofanancy.com. And by the way, big shout out to House of Anansi Press for their support during the launch of this podcast. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they 
don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. All right, man, before we get started, I guess you heard about Deborah Drever, huh? Yeah, I heard about my girl. I'm very disappointed. So I'm just going to have to rescind that party invite. Deborah Drever, for those who don't know, we've talked about her a couple of times. And uh, she made some homophobic remarks that got her kicked out of the Alberta NDP caucus. So she's sitting as an independent now. I guess the part that really bothered me, though, is that she's not someone who just reached voting age. She's 26 years old and she's saying that kind of stuff. I mean, come on. You, you really got to grow up faster than that. It's a bad look. Very bad look, girl. But whatever. On with the show. So again, this week, we found someone very smart who agreed to answer our questions. Jennifer Robson is an assistant professor at Carleton School of Political Management. She also briefly worked in the PMO under the Chrétien Liberals. And she's got some other credentials, uh, quite a few actually, which I don't really understand, but I trust that they're very, very impressive credentials. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Just a quick note, just for you and your listeners. If you happen to hear any noise in the background, I'm at home and I've got three kids. And so sometimes, you know, they like... They run around and sometimes they make a bit of noise. Thanks for clarifying that because sometimes uh, Andre sounds like a whining four-year-old and, you know, <laughs> listeners get confused. So. Okay, well, that's real good, Des. So, uh, Jennifer, you work at the School of Political Management, and that's like a training ground for places like the PMO, is it not? Yeah, it's a professional training program for people who are interested in becoming political managers, whether that's in the prime minister's office or working for the opposition or sometimes working in NGOs or some of them actually want to run for office themselves. Okay, Jennifer, let's start at the very beginning. What is the prime minister's office? What is the PMO? Okay, I was a little worried when you said, let's start at the very beginning. I thought we were going to, like, there was the big bang. and then anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the PMO actually stands for the office of the prime minister, which you would think we would call it the OPM, but no, we don't. We call it the PMO, prime minister's office. And it is a group of folks who uh, work directly for the sitting prime minister. And so every time there's a new prime minister, there's some turnover, right? Like this is his private personal office. It's his, it's his group of folks that are there to support him in his role. And how big is our prime minister's office? How many people are working in it right now? Um, I don't have a hard number, but let's say give or take about 100. That's massive. That's a squad. That's like that's a whole crew. It's his peeps. Yes, it's his posse. It's a pretty big one, I suppose. Yeah. What do they do, though? Does he got a hype man? Please tell me he's got like a flavor flavor or like a spliff star or somebody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's see. He's got his own video crew now. So I don't know. Does that count? Definitely. Okay. There you go. There you go. So yes, there's going to be a chief of staff. There's going to be a deputy chief of staff. There's going to be a person who's like the senior communications, media relations person, and then a whole team that works for them. The senior person giving policy advice like, hey, we're in government. What should we do? And then there's a group of people working for them. There's a person who's in charge of helping the prime minister organize all the logistics around travel. And, and there's a group of folks who are called advanced people. And they actually get, you know, sent out across the country to go and figure out, you know, how, how various trips and events are going to go. 
So that's just, you know, that's a few examples I could go on and on and on. But yeah, basically, like there's there's a whole bunch of different kind of teams within that office. So basically, the prime minister's office staff are helping on a day to day basis manage his affairs, manage his trips. Court his schedule, figuring out, like, how should he comb his hair? Does he need a haircut? Like, Yeah, he needs some help with that one. Yeah, he need, <laughs> he's had the same helmet for, like, <laughs> nine, ten years. It's like Lego Man stuff. Like, I'm not joking. <laughs> he's, he's president business of Canadian politics. <laughs> <laughs> so, on the one hand, there's sort of the, these overarching, you know, strategic questions around, like, what's our message of the day? And, hey, what should we be doing on this international policy file? But, yeah, it also gets down to like the really granular, like what should the prime minister's personalized Christmas card look like this year? Okay, so who's paying for all these people? Is it is it my tax dollars that's paying for this whole squad? You betcha. So this is all taxpayer funded. It comes out of general revenues. And that's actually, that's been on the books legally since, well, like, I don't know, the 1910s sometime when our first um, Civil Service Act was passed. It went from being a pretty small group of folks, you know, small by today's standards, oftentimes a lot of overlap with the public service, to being more politicized and being more focused on, okay, what's the prime minister's agenda? What's the government's agenda? What policies are we trying to get through? I know, like, for example, under Mulroney, he sort of thought, saw it as being like his own parallel department, right? So he's got this like permanent public service department called the Privy Council Office. But those are made up of folks who are part of the permanent nonpartisan public service, who also provide advice to the prime minister and are there to support him. And so prime ministers have, have sometimes wanted to have more support, right, than just what the, the PCO can give them to have their own independent peeps. So, you know, different prime ministers have kind of set it up in different ways. It's probably had different costs at different times. Um, so right now it costs us somewhere in the neighborhood of about eight million bucks a year for just the, the prime minister's office. Okay. And you've said that the tradition is for the prime minister to have an office of his own staff. Is the PMO in the constitution though? No, 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 no. Like a lot of this stuff really works by convention, right? But we've also kind of like created new jobs or new expectations for political offices. And so kind of in around like the Trudeau era, the office of the prime minister, first of all, got bigger. Um, it took on some new responsibilities and new roles and kind of a new prominence. Um, and all of this has really kind of evolved through convention, um, through practice. I mean, think about it. If you're the new prime minister, you come in and you're thinking about how am I going to set up my office? Well, what's the first thing you're going to look at? What did the last guy do? Let's pick up on this Trudeau thing, because I, I remember the very famous uh, Trudeau speech from the 70s when Pierre Elliott Trudeau enacted the War Measures Act. How and can he you was remember being... that? You were not around then. How can I, you remember I, I that? I remember seeing the video. Good point. I, mean, I wasn't around for the French Revolution, but I know about that. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, I remember Touché, it well. Yes, very okay. fair point. I remember watching video. And what amazed me so much about Pierre Trudeau answering questions about using the War Measures Act was that the journalists, first of all, were standing right next to him. He didn't seem to have any security or anything like that. And the interview goes on for like 20 minutes and they're allowed to grill him at length. They're even kind of walking around Parliament Hill as as they're talking to him. You're so, talking about the famous Just Watch Me video, that's right? That's the very yeah, yeah, famous Just Watch Me uh, uh, clip, yes. But it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a at, at any family. cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. So I'm wondering, does 
the expansion of the PMO over time have something to do with the fact that we don't see those direct, lengthy interviews with our prime minister anymore? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I have no idea how you'd establish that. I know, for example, you've had, uh, or Jesse Brown has had uh, Susan Delacourt on to talk about what it's been like in, say, the last decade in terms of the, the media's relationship with the current PM. I think if you talk to people who are in the thick of it, they would say they have just so much trouble just keeping up with the current media demands now. Like the volume of demand maybe from from the media has gone up. On the other hand, I think maybe the expectations of the ways of handling things, like you would just never see that now, right? Like you would just never see the PM walking around and having journalists just like come up to him and start asking questions. And you would certainly never see that happen where it went on for like, say, 20 minutes. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, Can I just take a second to say how badass that was? I mean, he he sat there and got grilled by journalists for that long. And by the end of the interview, he's like, yeah, and so what? What are you going to do? <laughs> but Jennifer, I, I heard you kind of, do you think that it's maybe a good thing that we don't have those kinds of interviews anymore? No, I'm not, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I think it just is. And mm. I think that there's there's a bit of this interactive dynamic between the media and the folks who are doing the communications that's gotten into, unfortunately, kind of a negative cycle, right? They limit access, and so the media requests more, and so they feel like they got to clamp down more. And I don't know. I, don't, I almost want to think of it in terms of almost like family therapy or something. Like, it's just, I don't know. The whole relationship is seems to have broken down somehow. on a downward tailspin. Yeah. Hey, look, I want to play this uh, clip from Brent Rathgaber. He's a former conservative member of parliament from Edmonton. And uh, currently, he's actually not a conservative. He's sitting as an independent. He wrote a book called Irresponsible Government, and recently he was on TVO. I just want to run a brief clip of him. I think most people don't understand how the system is supposed to work, and that's allowed the system to come off the rails, uh, where, where the Prime Minister's office and the Prime Minister have almost complete control over all of the parliamentary institutions, both the House and the Senate, and uh, that leads to inadequate checks and balances. And in, and in my observation, and in my opinion, that leads to bad decisions, bad legislation, and, and scandal without uh, anybody double-checking anybody else's work or, or, or activities. Yeah, so I hear a lot about this. The PMO has way too much power. Can you please explain to me what they mean when they talk about the PMO having too much power? In what ways does the PMO have too much power? How is that exercised? Or power in general. Okay, well, why don't I start with just the question of just like what powers it has, and then you know, maybe you and your listeners can decide whether that's too much or being misused or whatever. So the kinds of powers that the PM has are, for example, to be able to name people into his cabinet or kick them out, as the case may be, to decide what portfolios they get. And so from the perspective of newly elected MPs, they're excited they just won the election, that their party is going to form government, and now they really want to make it into cabinet. So there's that. Okay, but why would someone like Brent say that? So I I think he, I can't comment on, you know, his particular... You don't have to read his heart, but <laughs> you probably get where he's coming from, right? So I think in his case, he's spoken on the record several times about this, and that whole, that book is all about it, that in addition to that power to be able to name people to cabinet, efforts to try and get folks to kind of stay on message, to repeat the party lines, I think there's a sentiment in, in some corners... Um, and certainly Rathkeeper has talked about this, that the current style or the current way that the PMO is doing this is far more, 
I don't know, maybe aggressive than it has been in the past, that, that individual MPs are given less leeway in, than in the past to be able to talk about things that are of interest to them, to take independent positions, and that they find it more difficult maybe than in terms of that relationship with the prime minister's office than before. As far as drafting legislation, let's take for an example, because we brought this one up before, let's uh, take Bill C-51, for example. So it's a, it's a controversial bill that the Conservatives created, but how much of that, like, would there be any of that bill that was created by the PMO? Was that fully created inside of the cabinet? And and given that this whole thing seems to take place inside of a pocket universe, like there's just some extra universal dimension in which all of this seems to take place that I, as a voter, have no idea about. Why would it matter who drafted what? Okay. Um, so a bill like C-51 would have been drafted by the minister responsible with all the support from his various departments and civil servants, right? I guess the really important thing to know about any piece of government legislation is that it's actually drafted by experts in the federal public service. So they will take direction from the minister who is responsible. It's, it's not like legislation is actually, you know, written, you know, out by a minister, He's got lawyers and policy experts. It's an iterative process where he and his staff are going to be giving their preferences, what they want the bill to be able to do. And then it's up to the public service to try and craft a piece of legislation that they think is going to respond to that. But ultimately, in terms of the final copy that gets tabled in the House of Commons, the minister will have had to agree Right. And his cabinet colleagues will have had to agree with him that this is the right way to go. But the actual text of the words, no, they're not written by elected people. They're written by our federal public service. What's different, though, about kind of how that that sounds on paper, right, or works in theory, is that before you can get approval as a minister to bring something to cabinet, you got to get the PM to say it's okay to bring it to cabinet. And you can't necessarily actually like get to the PM himself, right? He delegates some of this function to his staff to give him advice, right? And to do that that discussion, that negotiation back and forth with ministerial offices. And so that function right there then gives staffers within the PMO a bit of power, I would say, or some influence, right? They don't get to decide, but they have some influence by going back and forth with ministerial offices by deciding or helping the prime minister to decide when things get on the agenda. So hold up, hold up. I mean, they're sitting next to the dude in the House of Commons. Somebody can't just lean over and be like, hey, bro, can you have a look at this real quick? <laughs> sure. But like, who's there to actually document that the conversation took place and that this is what he said and this is what's been agreed to and so on and so forth, right? So it's all very well and good to have that conversation, but you need a machinery around people to actually implement it, right? All right. Is there anyone who actually says, nah, you know what? The PMO should have more power. <laughs> Not that I've ever heard anybody willing to go on the record and say that. You know, back in the, I think it was an early 80s, there was an article, it's an academic article, it was written by Tom Axworthy, who had been the principal secretary to Trudeau. And he wrote this piece saying, hey, look, if you're the prime minister and the leader of a government coming in, you really want to make some changes, you've got a clear vision of how you want the country to be run, and you want to make the best use of your time in the office then you need to have the capacity of a strong PMO. I, I don't think that he kind of could have anticipated back then the types of debates and the types of concerns that we've got now about exactly how far the PMO has expanded. And I also just want to say that I think his perspective was really focused more on, like, if you've got a policy agenda, 
right? And I think when we're talking about concerns about the PMO now, it's not so much about railroading on policy. It's like message control and spin. And it's mostly sort of like issues management and communications focused. So at the beginning of the show, we talked to a listener named David, and he was really confused about this whole Mike Duffy thing. He didn't get how the prime minister could just pass the buck and say, don't ask me what happened. Ask the people who work for me. Doesn't that seem bizarre? I guess it is it is weird, right? Like, hey, why don't you ask all these people that report to me what happened rather than me? It's also weird in that he's actually put out a document. You know, he didn't write it himself. The prime minister didn't write it himself. But, you know, he signed it and he would have had to approve it. And it's called uh, Advice to Ministers. And there's some pretty clear language in there that says, you know, ministers are accountable for the behavior of their staff. It's kind of bizarre. I don't know quite how you reconcile, hey, I'm going to give this advice and this expectation that ministers are accountable and and answerable for the behavior and the conduct of their staff, then, you know, kind of have this plausible deniability. So to whom does that ultimate responsibility fall? So if the PMO screws up or the prime minister himself screws up, who then becomes answerable? So I think there's a difference between like answerable And maybe what we also sometimes think about in terms of accountability and responsibility, right? So answerable means like the prime minister and his ministers, they're supposed to stand up at question period and and answer questions to the other folks in the House of Commons, right? And that's that's one way of maintaining that answerability or that accountability. I, I think, though, that maybe... You know, sometimes we tend to think, well, if they're truly accountable, if they're really answerable, if they're really taking responsibility, then, you know, like maybe they should step down. And that's one way to resolve that issue, responsibility. But hey, you know, there's also this thing called elections, right? And so if we are displeased with how the government has run, if we are displeased with the mistakes that a prime minister or his staff have made, we get an opportunity. When the writ is dropped, we get an opportunity to, you know, to vote. The writ, uh, the writ being dropped. Just explain that one. Real ah, quick sorry, to you. jargon again. No, that's all right. This is how we learn. This is how we learn. <laughs> so the writ being dropped, it's a reference to the start of the election. I gather it actually. There was a time where the way that the election was started was that you would actually go like into a public place, and an official would actually have this like written notice of the election, and would like literally drop it in, you know, some common crowd area or whatever. Like a microphone. Holy smokes. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And like people would be grabbing for a copy of it, you know? That's our Canadian Heritage Minute here on Canada Land (laughs) Commons. Love it. I mean, just to tie it back to your last uh, answer here, it almost seems to me like there's a really long plaque on the prime minister's desk that says, the box stops. I don't know where the hell. Ask my staff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, Jennifer, you've done a wonderful job helping us to explore and clarify the role of the prime minister's office. And, uh, or the office of the prime minister, let me say. (laughs) We really thank you for your time today. Okay, well, I hope it was helpful. Thanks a lot. It was. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. So I guess now we know if you ever see the prime minister in the club, you can expect to see his crew right behind him in the PMO. He rolls 100 deep. (laughs) Jennifer did a good job explaining the concerns of people who say that the PMO has too much power. And from what I heard from her, I don't know if I really uh, buy that it's the PMO itself that has too much power. I think that it's people within government making decisions and that being blamed on everything around them. So you blame 
cabinet. You blame the PMO. You even blame uh, the electoral system for decisions that are just being made by politicians. Like, I think we really have to distinguish and not blame the structure all the time. And we should hold accountable the people who are operating within the structure. And that's why this whole idea of elections keeps coming back up, because you can't blame the structure for everything that individual people decide. And I guess one thing to follow up with on that is, I don't understand why it is that people in Canadian politics, I think this is very particular to us, have such a hard time taking responsibility for things, saying, you know what? Yeah, I screwed up and I'll try to do better next time. Um, I mean, Des, you know that I've had my pro- my problems with President Obama, but one thing that I, I like that he does is when something falls into his lap and he either he screwed up or somebody on his staff screwed up or maybe even somebody in his government screwed up, he'll say, you know what? We screwed up. I'm taking responsibility for that. I'm sorry, we'll try to do better. I, I tend to get that sense from him. I don't think I can name a single Canadian politician. I'm pretty sure there are some out there, but I can't name one where that's been their MO. Well, you know, we know now that the prime minister's office, for example, is not really, I think what I would have thought it was, was this organization that had this ability to really control the agenda. It does actually stop with the prime minister. The decision-making authority and Therefore, the responsibility ultimately is his. And I think that we shouldn't be so scared of the idea that the prime minister's office, for example, is going out there and writing policy because policy is written by a whole bunch of people who are not elected experts in government, the civil service, lawyers. And so- A hundred monkeys on a hundred typewriters. Well, the idea that you elect somebody so that they can sit down with their pen and pad and write the legislation is a bit naive, I don't think that any MP sitting down there like writing the legislation by candlelight with, you know, uh, will and ink. But maybe that's why they're not taking the ultimate responsibility. That's what I'm saying is that they have all these yeah, people but they who are advising them. should know what's in the bill them. before they support it. They should, but they have people advising them. They're saying, I took the best advice that I could get. I am not going to stand up here every day and take responsibility for every single thing that happens in the country because it's collective decision making. That's all I'm trying to say. All right. Another thing that Jennifer, I think, really helped to clarify for me was that this goes back to the 70s and the era of Pierre Elliott Trudeau when you know, the PMO was first really expanded to the current day. We talk a lot about Prime Minister Harper on this show, about the conservative government and the conservative uh, cabinet. But I think it's very helpful to remember that something like the PMO having the amount of influence that it has today is a progression. I mean, even when we talked to Elizabeth May, she talked about this gaggle of people who are working behind the scenes with her every day. I think it's helpful to understand that these things happen over time. It's not just the function of one person deciding, hey, I think I'll beef up, beef up uh, the PMO. No, that's absolutely true. And one thing that, that I, I think I don't like very much about um, the way that we address the prime minister's office and Prime Minister Harper himself is we almost make it seem like every bad thing that's happened in this country in the last few years is his fault. He, well, he's building on a legacy of the people who came before him. So I think it's unfair to just lay everything at, at uh, Prime Minister Harper's feet. I don't personally agree with the way he's running his government, but I don't think that he would have been able to do as much as he has if it hadn't been for his predecessors. And here's an aside to all the conservatives listening to this program, because we know you're out there listening. We want to hear from people across this country in the political spectrum to talk about the issues. We know you're out there because you're busy chirping us. So just come on the show and say what you got to say. It's not like we're going to like, we're not going to attack you. We're not going to be, you know, really mean to you and stuff. We might make jokes about your hair. I'm going to make jokes about your hair, but (laughs) I make jokes about Desmond's hair. I mean, come on. What's wrong with my hair? Well, no, don't answer that. Forget it. Forget it. You know what? Show over. Done. done. Could use an Afro pick or perhaps Barber's Clippers, but whatever. Let's end the show on that note. (laughs) 
All right, everybody, that's Canada Land Commons for this week. If you want to comment on my hair or on Andre's lack of hair, you can hit us up on Twitter. Hey, 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 my scalp is smooth. My look is fly. All right, continue. <laughs> you can find me at Desmond Cole. And I'm at Andre Demise. That's A-N-D. You know what? Y'all know how to find me. It's Andre Demise. And don't forget to check out the new Canada Land Commons Twitter handle as well. A big shout out, as always, to our producer, Andrew Norton. And an extra shout out goes to our producer, Katie Jensen, who finds us awesome and very smart guests every week to talk to. Jesse Brown gets a shout out this week, although he has assured us he will never give us a $90,000 check. Which is why you should jump on that Patreon website and support the show. Also, the music credits go out to Nathan Burley. And uh, you can check us out at the new Canada Land website, which is canadalandshow.com. And we're also on Stitcher. So for all you smart folk who have shunned the Apple cult, go on Stitcher and download the show. Listen, guys, if you're out there and you like this program, show us some love. Tweet about the show. Give us a review. Tell a friend. Tell 10 friends. Tell everybody. Tell your poli-sci professor. Tell your teachers because we want to have this show accessible to people who teach civics. Now, the next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be out on Thursday. And the next episode of Canada Land Commons will be out next Tuesday. See you next week. Peace. It's like that Kanye West song, Power. No one man should have all that. Okay, you you guys suck. No one backed me up on this one.